Critical Transit Podcast, episode 45, and this is the first of a series of recordings and insights and uh, other random musings from the Transportation Research Board Conference in Washington, D.C. This is the, uh, I don't know, it's like 100th, it's close to 100th year that they've had it. Um, it's in it's in Washington, D.C. It's uh, The TRB is, one of the nas- is part of the National Academy of Sciences, which uh, promotes research and uh, discussion in uh, various fields, uh, in this case, transportation. And so there are a lot of things that have absolutely nothing to do with transit or walking or bikes or anything that I and you care about, uh, and I will leave those well alone. Um, if you want to go learn about the life cycles of various kinds of bituminous pavements and other things, um, or aviation stuff, you can certainly find that, find out about that. Um, you know, their website is trb.org, so you can find uh, a lot of information there. And, uh, so I'm going to bring you the first of the recordings in this episode. I'm not going to talk too much now, because I think you will just get a lot out of listening to the, uh, to the audio. So I'll just play it and I'll apologize in advance for any, uh, audio issues, quality, um, I did my best to find quiet little places outside of the conference rooms to do the recording and at quiet times as best I could. But, um, you know, you'll hear conversations around. You will hear uh, people uh, moving about with carts of, uh, of water. Now, on that note, random tangent, can I just say that, you know, everybody's always talking about sustainability and everything. Can you Can you stop, like, walking up to the water cooler, grabbing a plastic cup, taking one drink out of it that's, like, half the size of the cup and then tossing the cup in the trash and repeating like 10 minutes later can you just like get a water bottle and just like not waste all these plastic cups everything was overflowing with plastic cups and there were cups all over the floor and trash and it's disgusting so anyway so one last thing before i roll the audio i just want to say that um you know it obviously you can't get to everything and so uh you know i did my best to get to uh, as many relevant sessions as as i could and um, I'm very happy to be there and, you know, connect with people and, and learn all this information and, and pass this on to you. And hopefully that some of these things will be useful. And, and I'd love to hear about what interests you and uh, what you'd like to hear more about, you know, get the discussion going. So, you know, get in touch all the usual ways. Oh, yeah, that's right. There might be new people listening. So, yes, uh, Facebook, Twitter, at Critical Transit, uh, feedback at criticaltransit.com is the email address. And the website is criticaltransit.com. You can get all the info about this show at criticaltransit.com slash 45. So in this clip, I started out by talking about some of the themes that are going on, um, some of the, you know, the overarching themes that you hear talked about again and again. So there's that. And also we're going to talk about the first series of presentations that I went to, which focused on uh, light rail transit implementation uh light insertion of light rail into the urban environment was was a uh, kind of title i'm paraphrasing a little bit um they're going to talk about walking and talk about um you know as it relates to designing light rail systems uh looking at the design of transit uh and and you know thinking about design from the start and not you know not just thinking about design as if like Okay, you know we've planned for all these functional needs, and uh, you now you can you guys can go and you know tell us what color you want the train to be, um, or you know talking about it, thinking about how how designing you know physically designing the the vehicles, facilities, 
and everything else can really, you know, affect the types of behavior that, that we want to see. Um, so that's really interesting. And then I think that'll wrap it up for today. So here it goes. There's kind of a couple of themes that are going on here that I notice, and I will uh, maybe talk about some of those themes in, in a little bit. But I, I wanted to kind of run through a few of the... Um, eh, whatever, I'll talk about some of the themes now. There's a lot of... I get that. Well, first of all, the, so the conference is split into these three different hotels that the conference is at, and next year it's going to be moving all to one location. But it's you know it's been here in the same place for like twenty I don't know twenty years or something, and so or maybe even longer I don't know. But so and most of the public transit stuff happens in the, one of the hotels in the Hilton, um, and so that's kind of that's where I've been so far. I haven't been to the other hotels yet this time. Um, you know, but there's some stuff going on in the other hotels. There's there's also, you know, issues about street design, which which I'm interested in. But, you know, because they're at other places, it's hard to kind of mix that all in. And there, um, you know, and then there's, there's a lot of, like, you know, road and highway stuff. And, you know, most of that stuff, like, you know, I honestly couldn't give a shit about. And, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, like, you probably wouldn't either. Um, and there's a lot of stuff, you know, mathematical formulas for determining various issues statistical analysis and regression stuff that i it's just way over my head so you know if you if you isolate that out like what i'm the pool that i'm that i'm kind of looking at is like probably 40 percent or less of the of actually what's going on um but you know putting that aside i mean you see one of the some of the themes that you see kind of going on is there's there's always been this big this big push in the like you know, technology—it's sort of like this this ambiguous idea of technology is gonna gonna solve all our problems. And you know, the latest that we see that is, the latest ways we see that is in uh, in in two ways. In in this uh, you know data, this you know open transit data. You know, we're gonna release the data, and transit developers are gonna do all kinds of wonderful things with it. And you know, that's been going on for several years. But there's also, especially this year, there's this idea, you know, this talk about self-driving cars and, and automation as, like, this this big, big thing. And so I talked about in, uh, I think it was episode 43 or 42, you know, when um, one point I, I interviewed uh, Marky Bunya, we were talking about rail safety and we talked about automation, and then I got a couple of follow-up comments that I addressed in, in a future episode about the issue of automated transit. And um, somebody wrote in to me, I'm trying to remember who it was, that wrote in about automated transit. I believe it might have been... Well, I don't want to say a name because I don't want to guess, but um, I'll mention it in the future. Um, wrote in to say that, you know, automation is, you know, maybe, maybe you know, the the, reason, the issue that we talked about were of humans becoming complacent in, in, the, in light of automation being there in a, in a vehicle or, you know, facility or whatever... Is, is you know a reason for uh, you know a stronger argument for uh, computerized systems, um, but then I thought about you know one of the one of the presentations I actually went to the other day was the is actually about uh, Wamata here in Washington D.C. and they were talking about um, you know it was a presentation uh, dealing with I forget which well I forget which presentation this was but um, it was talking about safety and they talked about the uh, 2009 train crash. Oh, the understanding consumer response to disruptions um, was, I think, the the title or or the the idea, and um, 
this was, and so there was some other talk here. I, I unfortunately missed a lot of this session, which had some good good stuff going on. But um, one talk I, I did hear was uh, a person from Wamada talking about, yeah, how, how do service disruptions affect ridership? And he looked particularly at the effects of the 2009 crash when uh, one red line train uh, crashed into another train that was stopped at a signal, you know, on the same track. And uh, the first car of the, the train that did the crashing was just completely destroyed, and uh, nine people were killed and a lot of people injured, and the train, like, kind of fell off an embankment, and it was a, a big, big mess. Um, and so the so he was looking at you know effects on ridership on, on that line and, and on others and um and how that affects perceived safety and reliability and you know the result was like you know it, it was kind of noticeable on the red line but um not really much overall it wasn't like riders confidence was really shaken enough in in metro to to stop using metro you know although maybe there was some of that um but also, there were impacts. Um, there were, you know, there's a loss of jobs, and there was there were impacts um, related to like you know escalator and elevator outages. These are these are very deep stations, um, so that those have a big impact on ridership, and then, you know people switching to buses to some extent. So um, that's you know that was a that was a very interesting uh, talk, and I I think about this because excuse me if you haven't noticed uh, my voice, I'm kind of sick, so I'm, I'm doing the best I can here. Um, and so I, I think about this red line crash because, you know, when we talk about automation, the, the red line crash happened because the train was operating in automatic mode and there was it didn't read the signal properly or something and it didn't, uh, you know, it, it uh, crashed because it yeah it didn't it didn't read that the, there was something wrong I don't forget exactly what happened but there was something where like the signal system didn't detect the other train that was stopped on the tracks like waiting for some other reason maybe a signal or something um, and so the second train wasn't told to to stop where it should have been told and then it it crashed into the first one and you know okay yeah you could say you could say well you know having a having a driver there is like well it, you know it becomes complacent and so that's a reason to but it doesn't mean there's a reason to just fully automate it because then i mean well the crash would have happened anyway um in this case it was on a curve so the driver did pull the emergency brake and you know do what he could to stop but unfortunately you know you can't operate heavy rail trains on on light of line of sight it just doesn't work um you know you're talking about trains that are going 45 50 miles an hour so um yeah so that was just a an interesting incident to sort of bring up in, in response to that comment that I that I, this this ongoing thing and love to hear your thoughts on it certainly and uh, speaking of, of themes also you know there's this other thing and you know this increasing you know uh, providing you know providing your data to, you know more and more data and data is going to solve everything and um, you know and people talked especially at this uh, this transportation camp event that I went to on uh, Saturday which was separate from TRB um, unfortunately I missed the first half because my train my Amtrak train was nine hours late, and I wound up getting into D.C. almost 3 a.m., and I just couldn't make it over there for 9 a.m. for the start. Um, so I missed a, a bit of it, but um, but I did go to a few sessions in the afternoon and uh, spend a bunch of time speaking with people. Um, and so it was I mean, it was an interesting event and, and uh, you know, nice to connect with people, and especially a lot of people that I've, uh, you know, interact with on, on Twitter and may even listen to the show um, that I just didn't you know i'd never seen in in person it's like oh i i know what you look like i don't know if have i ever seen you before um or oh i know that i know that twitter handle so that's that was interesting stuff um 
and and one thing that's you know always talked about is this data but you know i was always is kind of making the point that you know it doesn't really matter how much data you provide and how good your smartphone apps are and everything it's 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 only when the system is is reliable when you have a system that you can trust so that it's you know it's it's frequent enough that you know you don't have to wait too long for it it's it's there when you need it uh, it's you know it's the the principles of effective transit. I think was uh, you know they're outlined in uh, in Human Transit, Jared um, Walker's book, um, where he talks about the you know it's it's available when I need it. It goes where I need to go. It's it's a reasonable use of my time and money. Uh, it's you know I can trust it to come on time, and, and you know you know all the the other things for like frequently reliably and all that. Uh, and you know it's it's reasonably comfortable and safe, and uh, I think there's another one. But um, the, you know these 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 basic things, and it's like okay, I can I can trust the service. So it's great that I can I can have however many apps I want, and you know all kinds of you know you can do all kinds of trip planning and everything, um, and I can find that you know a great way to get to some place that's three hours away. But the thing is, you know, so I get there, and then yeah, the, the apps will get me there, but you know it's only. I can only really rely on that and use, you know, use only the apps if I if I know enough about the system to know that there's going to be some way to get me back from where I'm going, right? You can't just, you know, and and then I'm not going to have to wait forever, and that you know it's not going to be a cumbersome. Like I need to know what my options are. So you know, these okay, yeah, data, data can can be great and stuff, but I mean. To be honest, like I'm still even when I'm planning trips across multiple agencies, like I'm still looking at bus schedules because you just have to understand what what's out there. You don't you don't have to you know necessarily identify a time that you need to be back unless it's like a really infrequent rural service. But you need to understand like you know what your options are for for getting back and getting around. And you know what if I go what if I go someplace and then you know then we decide we want to go to some other place. You know can I get there? Or is it is it is it easy? And uh, this is the kind of stuff that's going to make people decide whether to use transit or not and uh you know and, and for for many of us to decide whether to go or, at all or not you know like i'm not going to go drive a car to the suburbs just because transit doesn't go there i'm just not going to go so these issues will probably come up again and again um but i thought i'd quick give a quick run through of the, some of the sessions that i went to and uh, i only got not not a whole lot of time before i have to be in my next session um and i'll continue this obviously I don't know when it's going to be released, but sometime in the near future. Um, so the one of the first sessions I went to is the, uh, you know, talking about uh, implementing or you know in, inserting light rail transit into the the urban streetscape. And so there were some examples from uh, a couple speakers from Spain and uh, one speaker from France, and we were talking about the, you know, these these challenges of. And, and how to overcome and deal with some of the issues uh, in terms of, you know, putting light rail transit into busy urban environments. And then, you know, of course, if you listen to this this show, you're probably asking yourself, well, why why are you defaulting to, to light rail? Uh, yes, that that is a legit question, and uh, you know, that's one of the things that that kind of came up a couple times in, in the presentation. And it's it's it gets a little tiring, kind of going going out of the light rail advocates. But you know, one of the things you hear sometimes is and and you know. You can you can sort of debate this is that the the politicians and, and others don't really want to have bus service because of the image, you know. And it's not that it's not that buses are are bad or they have you know they they have to be bad or whatever. Like you know we all know buses can be great and better. You know buses are sometimes better than trains in in many ways, but 
you know, it's these because they have the image of the bus. It's like, well, you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna take all the space from cars, then you know, and give it to to transit, well, then it better be a shiny train. It's not gonna be a bus. You know, it's like that kind of thing. So then it's like, well, if we can, you know, if the only improved transit we can get has to be a train, then it's like, well, you know, it's still better. You know, it's gonna cost us a lot of money and it's whatever. But it's like, you know, do we want improved transit? And it becomes it becomes a political calculation. So, you know, obviously the politics are, are still a bit different, but in the, the Fr- French and Spanish context, it's still, you know, there's there's still a lot of, of uh, resistance from, like, car drivers and, um, yeah, especially car drivers um, and, you know, the politicians who drive cars, of course. Um, there's still a lot of the same resistance and a lot of auto-oriented development as well in in these places so it's not like you know a lot of people like to think of these places as as like you know there's like quaint old towns like everybody takes transit everywhere and it's just and that's not really the case you know i was reading about how in france didn't have any any light rail until the 1980s um you know they had old streetcars back in the day and they ripped them all out and um it was like germany had modernized some of the old streetcars that they had you know gradually um just kind of like in a place like philly and boston but uh you know they never Although those places, you know, got rid of many of them that didn't return, but you know, they they had in France that got rid of all the light rail, and uh, with the exception maybe of Paris, I'm not sure. Um, but in all the others, yeah, they they got rid of them, and they, you know, never they didn't replace them until 1985 was the first one, and then there were like a few in subsequent years, and then uh, it's been you know growing exponentially since then. Um, which is which is great, but it's just like it's sort of like putting laying the groundwork is is very very difficult. Getting that first one in is still very very difficult, and uh, you know, and then once people start to see it, they start to it's working in other places. They'll start to accept it, but it's still you still get very much the oh that won't work here. It's different, even though it's like exactly the same and whatever. Um, so, but anyway, you know, we're talking about so uh, you know the first uh, first speaker. I should, I should get some people's names here. Hold on. So this uh, first first talk was from uh, Margarita Novales uh, from the University of Coruna in Spain, and I uh, apologize if I'm mispronouncing anybody's names here. Some people, are, you know, some of these names are not uh, familiar to my native language. Although I've been uh, meaning to learn French, and that's certainly on my agenda, and I need to have some kind of push. Maybe I need to like plan a trip to France, and I'll, that'll get me to do it. Um, although she's not French, she's Spanish, but still. Um, there is a guy from France, and I will say his name in a minute. So, uh, so Margarita gave this talk, and she was was saying that you know you have to stressing the importance really of, of of doing it right. You know, if you know if we get these, if if we if you do something that you know doesn't have that's not going to have good ridership, or you know you don't give it priority, or if you just you know if you if you fall to these political you know disagreements and stuff and you you know you just fail to make it good and you fail to provide off-board fare payment and you know whatever stuff like that it's just not going to work and then it's going to be cited as an example for like what not to do and then in uh, not just you know what not to do as a transit but you know to to not make transit at all not build transit at all and that's gonna that's just bad um that doesn't work and and she actually cited a couple of examples of systems that uh don't even work or that, that didn't even work and and that that weren't uh, weren't used or they were discontinued. And there was one. There was one system that was like a. It was like a seven-mile line or something. And and you know, phase one was was built and is still in operation. Phase two was built like a few years ago and it just never even. It, they never even started operating it because they were just like it's going to be too expensive. And then the the government changed and they were like we don't want to pay for that. And, um, it's just total waste of money. I don't know if you notice I keep having to pause the show because of uh, you know weird noises. Uh, you know. 
various things being carried around and stuff. Um, I'm going to try to keep going. So there's... So yeah, you have to do the light rail right because if yeah, if you don't, you're just gonna it's just not gonna work and it's gonna be a bad example and all that. And so what what does doing it right means? Well, you know what she talks about in this presentation is um, you know you have to focus on on transit oriented development. You know, make it uh, build places right. You're you're inserting into the urban environment, so you you need to pick a good place to do it. You know, transit's got to be on a busy dense street. Um, you know, you can't just be like, well, this is the busy street and it's got too much going on now and, like, it's not going to work, so we're just going to put it, you know, a few blocks away and or we're going to put it nearby where we have where we have this rail corridor. And, you know, it's like – but think about uh, roads. You know, all all of the – like, every street in, in the city is public space. Um, you know, when we talk about, like, oh, it's easy to put it on a, you know, an old rail right of what – because that's, you know, we own that and nobody really cares if we put it there. You know, nobody's going to really object. But it's like that, you know, that's not going to be where your demand is because it's an old rail corridor and there's nothing going on there and there's no transportation there now and, there's, you know, there's not going to be your activity. So if you really want to make places where, you know, and make this convenient for people to use and, and help, you know, have it help with the, the environment and everything and people get, get around not by car, then, you know, you need, to, you need to put it in the busiest place, in the densest place. Otherwise, it's just... It's just not going to work, and so you know, it's like if you, sort of like if you can't do that, it becomes, you know, do, should we should we even be bothering? You know, maybe maybe you just if you know if you design something silly, then you know maybe you just put it into just just you'd be better off just taking some money and putting in a few bus lanes that could that could save some time for some buses routes and not, you know, and not kind of go all out and invest in something that's you know not going to be a success. Um, and so in addition to re- reallocating road space, you really have to limit car space because, um, you know, a lot of people like to say, I've talked about this before, you know, people say, oh, well, you know, transit, like, we, we don't hate cars, you know, cars are fine. It's like, well, no, transit and cars are inherently competitors, and, you know, you need to make it difficult and expensive to drive if you want great masses of people to to drive to uh, take transit. Um, you know, people go on and on about environment and whatever else, but, you know, really, like, most people just care about uh, saving time and money, and so you have to make it that way so that people are going to use transit. And you need to make transit fast and uh, frequent and reliable. Uh, it's you know it's got you got to have high quality transit, um, which is part of reallocating road space, right? You need to do that for that purpose. Um, so I mean, you need to have high quality transit. What does that mean? High high, high level of service. What does that mean? It's uh, you know it's got to be fast. It's got to be frequent. Um, you know, have very good information and uh, not just easy, not just comprehensive information, but you know, easy to access, understand, intuitive, uh, all that. It's got to have a you know, a very low door to door time. So um, it's not just enough if the transit, the actual transit component of the trip is is fast, but the you know the waiting time's got to be reliably low. And you know, in other words, like the longest time you're going to wait has to be pretty low, um, and you got to you know you got to be able to get there fast, and and uh, you know you shouldn't be requiring tons of transfers. Um, if you do require transfers, the design of that has to be good, so it's you know you're not walking forever and ever, and then and the connections are reasonably quick. Um, but also you know if if you're going to uh, design the line. Uh, that like a lot of these light rails in, in North America are these you know these little like three four mile lines that um, you know you build this high capacity line it's like well you know now we're duplicating it with the existing bus service that we have so you know we're gonna have to shorten these bus lines and have them end at the, at the terminus of the rail line so then people have to transfer to the rail but it's like well you know you're making people transfer for three miles it's like well what for you know and that that just provides a disincentive and if you if you have to do that or if you have like you know like 
um, one's coming to mind is uh, the O train in in Ottawa. It's like five stations that they just they basically just put it in there because they had uh, they had an unused rail right of way. It's a single track. It's got like five stations, and it's kind of it runs every twenty minutes. It's kind of ridiculous, um, and they they just basically like you know if you you got to kind of walk far to get to stuff, and it doesn't it doesn't go where like the transit way is where most people are you know the B, their BRT that that they're known for. Uh, it doesn't really. I mean, it kind of I think it interfaces there, but it doesn't it doesn't go in the same place. So it it's just kind of silly, and you have to make a lot of bunch of transfers. Um, and there are a bunch of new light rail lines that are that are, have been built like this. And I know Seattle is an example where they built a light rail line, or maybe it was a streetcar that was like it was like three miles long, or not even. I think they maybe they even like the first the first phase was like a mile and a half, something ridiculous like that. And it just it doesn't it's just not nobody's who's going to use that. Who's going to be who's going to be enticed to use transit? The only the only people that are going to use that are people who would have been just better off just like you know if the bus continued serving that. Uh, because they're already on the bus in the first place. Um, other things you need to have are, um, you know, rel- it's got to be really reliable. Um, stops spaced pretty far apart. Um, it has to have good priority in traffic. Uh, and you got to design the transfer as well. Uh, cost, got to be reasonable cost, comfortable. Uh, I said you have the information. And so, you know, all that is really, really important if you want uh, people to, to use the system. Uh, political agreement is important. You know, sometimes this is something you can't control because the governments change hands, and uh, that's what happened in a couple of systems in in Spain where um, the government changed control, and then the the new government didn't want to pay for the operating costs because at least in one case it was uh, it was way over budget. You know, they realized that it was going to cost a lot more to operate because the ridership was going to be a lot like half of what it predicted, um, which is kind of a major fail to begin with, and then. You know, then they were like, "Oh, we don't want to operate this because you know it's just not it's going it's going to cost us a lot of money, so we're just not going to bother." And then they have this system like it's the same problem we have here in the U.S. when we talk about you know all these capital funds and new operating funds, right? You know, you get all this money to to build something, um, and of course there's like pressures to you know overestimate ridership and everything because like you know new ridership is like the only thing that's valuable. It's not there's no they don't care about improving anything for existing riders, right? So you know. You have all this incentive to kind of overestimate stuff, and then, um, you know, in the cost, your cost effectiveness index, all these metrics, and then you wind up with this situation where, so you, you get something and you build it, and you're like, uh, um, I forget, they were doing, I remember St. Louis that was doing this where they, they built it, and they had, they were only able to operate it like every 30 minutes or something, and it was just like, what, what the hell are you bothering for? Like, why are you. You know, if you're only running every 30 minutes and that's sufficient for your ridership, then like, why are you not just running a bus? And you know, you're bothering to maintain all the all the rail equipment and everything. It's just it just doesn't make any sense. Um, and that's what you know they've gotten into in a couple of places. But but in most places, it's it's been very successful because it's been it's been done well. You know, they've insisted on doing it well instead of you know kind of watering it down. You know, like letting cars drive on the tracks and letting it you know making it weighted signals and you know left turns. You know, they don't have they don't have like cars making left turns in front of trains and stuff like that and you know um you know if they if they'll have cars anytime they have cars and pedestrians crossing the tracks it's always transit's got the priority you know it's the vehicle's coming it's moving it's not it's not sitting there waiting for a red signal as in uh, many places um like minneapolis is one i'm thinking of where they just built uh, the green line that's uh, the new central corridor rail line and they you know i don't believe there's any signal priority there and there's a whole bunch of places where cars are going to be turning left across the tracks and it's just a uh, that's going to be kind of a kind of a mess, a nightmare. Um, 
So, and um, so, speaker from from France, uh, Dominique Bertrand. From where is he from? He is from the oh geez, um, I think the English translation of this is the Center for Research and Studies of Transport, Urbanism, and Public Construction, Public Works, perhaps. Urbanism, Transport, and Public Works in France. Okay. Um, I don't know where in France that is, but he, so he was talking about uh, some of the same things, and he um, he touched on a lot of the same things that I just won't repeat, but, um, you know, some of the more important, he's talking about, you know, doing it well, so uh, capacity, frequency, and speed, um, and, and is going to make a reliable service, and the image is so important because uh, word of mouth and, and how people people see it, and a lot of this is just is subtle and silly things, like, you know, they see the, the vehicle looks cool, and it's like, you know what? I've talked about this many times before. It's like, yeah, okay, the train is usually it's usually a smoother ride. It depends. Boston Screen Line may be an exception to that. Um, it's usually a smoother ride on the train. Um, that's just generally because the train isn't stuck in mixed traffic. Um, but, the, you know, the train usually looks nicer and it's usually more comfortable and whatever. But, you know, generally, if I'm trying to get A to B, I couldn't care less what kind of vehicle it is. You know, as long as it's, I know it's safe and reliable and, and reasonably efficient. You know, the, all I care about is is getting there quickly and efficiently, and, you know, and safely and, and reliably. I don't, I don't care what you know what the thing looks like. So, but a lot of people do, and so that's sort of like, you know, designing it right, designing the stations right, and so everything just kind of blends into the environment. It doesn't feel like it's intrusive. Um, it's it, it, like they talk about insertion. Um, you know, not they don't want to be they don't want to be intrusive to the, to the neighborhood. Um, you got to have dedicated running ways. That's like critical. Dedicated running ways with priority. Um, you know, none of this like you know shared right turn lanes or anything like that. Um, it's got to be you know, and then the train's coming and then it gets a signal and it goes. Um, and you got to think about accessibility and uh, pedestrian routes. He, he made this real good point about pedestrian routes, which was that um, you got to plan for where people want to go um, because. And I've talked about this. I heard a great talk last year about uh, informal paths of travel. And the, the idea of this was that, you know, people, people travel where they, where they want to go, um, like I call it social paths. And, um, you know, you have, to, you have to design for uh, the ways that people are, are getting around. So a lot of times you'll find, like, a, you'll find a station that's built and it's only got, like, one exit. Um, but then people have kind of made another exit. There's, like, a little dirt path that people have kind of made through through some grass and stuff on the other side or um especially you see this especially when it snows if you study there's no snow here in washington uh for better or worse i suppose um but you know you see this in in and when it snows um if you look at the snow in the in the following you know in the days after you can see where people are you, know, you can see people's footprints and tracks and and where people are walking and a lot of times it shows that okay yeah there there are there's a real direct desire line from to go from like well you know, the bus the bus stop is over here and the train is is over here and you know you're supposed to walk all the way around which takes like five times as long and you know people are just walking straight in a straight line from A to B you know bus to train I was gonna say here to here but you can't see my finger I'm pointing vigorously on this piece of paper here um, but this is not video so you know thinking about these pedestrian routes is people are gonna go anywhere uh, whether you want them to or not and um, 
I've, I've see, one thing I see often that I, I'm always very critical of is, um, you know, you hear all this uh, complaints about jaywalking, right? And, and it's like a, a much misunderstood phenomenon. I think I talked about this with Charlie Dennison way, way back, going to episode 16 or 18 or something like that. Um, and this is, you know, he writes about this really, really well in, in his blog, which is the idea of... Uh, you know, even the concept of of jaywalking is like it's just a phenomenon of of people like disobeying the dominance of cars, right? And it's like the, you know, it was it was made it was a term essentially made up by the road lobby to uh, it was a derogatory term for for out of towners, and it was it was kind of brought about by the road lobby to to talk about people who who were not following the order of the car. And, uh, you know, so it's just made to, to victim blame people and because um, people are the ones getting hit by cars and terrorized by cars. But so what happens is that people people don't cross at the – they don't necessarily cross at the designated locations, right? Because, you know, before cars, we never had these designated locations. You just let – you would let the trams go and then, you know, and if there was no tram coming, you would just go wherever you wanted. Um, and that's how it is in some of these pedestrian plazas where rail has been inserted in, in France, which I, I'd love to get to and, and check out. Um and they so um, so these when people you know people need to they, they don't always cross at the designated locations right and that's because you know either maybe the signal might be too long or you know intersection might be too dangerous because the car is not turning they're busy focused on turning right on red or whatever um, or you know especially the unsignalized crosswalks where you know it's notorious that the drivers don't stop there and uh, you know it's it's actually much safer in many cases to just you know you're just walking up the block and you see you see oh there's an opening and you cross you're like okay I'm gonna cross the street now and there's no traffic coming it's okay often it's a lot safer and it, and it saves a lot of time because you're not standing at the corner waiting um, for you know a signal that may be unreliable especially if you're in a place where you have to push the button and wait five minutes which is my god those things I hate those things so much every time I see one of those I want to like go and like burn them. Um, because they're so discriminatory because they're just like they literally you push the button and it, you have to wait five minutes for a signal and it's like nobody's actually going to wait 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 hey I'm waiting wait still waiting wait ah eh, fuck it I'm just going to go Wait. All right. Well, I won't record the whole, you know, three minutes or whatever. But I mean, this is that that was from an intersection in Silver Spring, Maryland, uh, right downtown, right next to the metro station. And there's uh, right now they have the transit center under construction. So there's buses stopping all over the downtown, and they, you know, have this. I don't know what is it, an eight lane street, a strode that you know you have to cross and. Uh, and, and the walk signal, you know, that's just an example of the walk signal. I mean, obviously, I didn't, I didn't play the whole thing. If I did, uh, you'd probably tune out of the podcast. Um, I'm always recording stuff like that, and I never know how to actually get them into the podcast. So I'm excited that I got that in there. All right, I'm guessing you're not quite that excited. But the point is that, you know, there's the way the signals are designed, it's, it's impractical. It makes it it makes it dangerous and or impractical to actually follow the signal, you know, do what you're supposed to do. Um, and on that matter, you know, the when when the walk signal finally does change, listen to how short it actually is. This is the you know you'll hear the amount of time that you have to actually 
step off to the corner and, and begin crossing. Walk sign is on to cross Colesville Road. Walk sign is on to cross Colesville Road. Did you get it? Were you paying attention? Did you turn around? Were you turning around looking for your bus and you missed it? Seven seconds. Anyway, the reason I bring this up is because um, in many places, the way that cities try to deal with this with this issue of, of people crossing and, and getting hit or, you know, slowing traffic or whatever, is they'll put up like a giant fence in the middle of the street or like a big median or something that's, that's like high and it's made, made to be a, a barrier so they you don't so you don't cross right and they do this with light rail too right you see a lot of fences they'll put a fence in the middle of the between the two tracks that are in the middle of the street so that you know you don't cross well that actually makes things a lot more dangerous because now you have to cross the designated locations which uh you know may not be the safest places um i wrote a post on uh on streets that i meant about the um new light rail going out on university avenue in st paul and how the crosswalks there, the designated crossing locations are all unsignalized crosswalks across two lanes of traffic, poorly marked crosswalks, and like the, the yielded people were complaining that uh, they have to wait 10 minutes for cars to yield to them, or they don't even yield, and they just have to wait for a gap in traffic for 10 minutes. Um, and, you know, people are going to be missing trains because of this, and right now I'm sure they're missing buses uh, that are running there. So, you know, th- if, if you take away that ability for people to cross when they see an opening, well then, it, you know, one of two things is going to happen. Either either they're just not going to be able to cross there and they're going to go to the designated crossing locations and they're either going to get, they're either going to have to wait forever or, or get injured, or they're going to cross anyway and they're going to be trying to climb over the fence. They're going to like run across the street and then they're going to get to this fence and be like, oh shit, how do I get over this thing? Or, you know, they'll be trying to climb over the fence and then they're going to get hit by doing that. And it's just, it doesn't, you know, you have to deal with the fact that this is a place where people want to go. This is a desire line, and you have to make that an accessible path of travel. Um, so that's that was a really important point that I uh, that I, uh, I got picked up on. By the way, this actually reminds me of a, a presentation that I heard last year at the TRB conference. Um, somebody talking about informal paths, as, as he called them. And, he, you know, he was looking at places where... Uh, pathways, you know, official pathways didn't exist, whether it was, you know, a cul-de-sac or, you know, next to a railroad tracks or, you know, maybe there was a, a transit station that only had one exit and people were walking out the other side anyway, you know, or places where there might be like a, a hole in a fence that somebody had made uh, so that people could walk through with groceries or whatever. Um, and it, it reminds me of that and, and you know, the idea that, that people are going to are gonna need to walk where they need to walk and, you know, if you try to regulate that, it just makes things much more difficult and much more dangerous. And now after that uh, big long tangent, uh, I'm going to move way, way back. I'm going to talk about public outreach in terms of perceptions of rail versus bus. It's this big thing that comes up all the time. And, uh, you know, the idea of, uh, you know, you know, maybe you should just build a bus, a bus lane. Um, but would the community even allow that? But they'll spend all their money on rail. It's weird. And then they talked about the challenges of public outreach resistance to buses. There was one speaker who uh, was from uh, here is uh, Andres Munoz uh, from the Metro Metro de Tenerife in Spain. Um, it's he said it's a it's like on a small like an island and uh, it's basically it was a place where the the mayors were. There was like kind of linking two cities that were pretty close to each other, and um, you know along a pretty common travel corridor with the light rail. And the the mayors and, and everybody was so resistant that they actually spent it was a three hundred million dollar or three hundred million euro project, 
and actually full, a full third of that, 100 million euros, was just the cost of uh, actually, you know, half. It was because half of the well, half of the actual needed cost was dedicated to uh, 100 million to paying for things that weren't even didn't even have anything to do with the light rail line. Like they, the mayors insisted that they that they you know. Uh, redo public plazas, and they build. They even had to build like a big parking garage in the center of the city, you know, for the competitor, the car, because like the mayor was like, "Well, if you want to take the streets for the light rail, then you have to do this." And it was just like, you know, that's just an example of sort of like what lengths do you go to for something like this? And and you know, I've always thought that in something like that, somebody does some pull something like that, and it's like you ought to, you know, in a, in a perfect world, like you know, you ought to lose your credibility to you know you ought to never be respected ever again and, and you know when you and you are so wrong and cause so much obstruction like you ought to completely lose your credibility and like and this is the public hearings you know everyone who came to my public hearings and complaining that if i you know if i moved the stops and the ridership was going to fall apart um you know better uh you know like you should they should like never be allowed to speak at a public meeting ever again um you know if i could if i could rule the world right um Anyway, so I'm going to go back to session because it is now time for me. I think it's a little over time for me to get back into session. So I will, uh, I will resume soon. So I mean, the public outreach. I mean, that just some of that just boggles the mind. I mean, you know, you're talking about you know a 200 million dollar project, and you have to spend another hundred million just just doing you know essentially, um, what is it called? Um, I don't want to say earmarks. It's like a you know playing politics, just just building stuff to appease politicians and. And, uh, you know, we deal with this all the time here with in, in terms of um, having to deal with people who are concerned about parking laws or, you know, concerned about the loss of a, of a travel lane or whatever for, for vehicles. And, you know, obviously it's not a loss when you think about moving people and not cars, but that's that's beside the point. You, you all know that. Um, and, and so, you know, going back to earlier in that in that session when we talked about the importance of doing it right. You know, too often here, you know, we'll go to build a good project and then it's like, well, you know, politically, you know, we're not able to get this dedicated lane. So we're just going to put it in mixed traffic. And, you know, and a lot of times it kind of defeats the whole point of the project or, or you know, a large part of it or whatever. And it's like, at the very least, it defeats the whole point of why, why you went out and you did all the studies and everything else. And it's it. So it's this, you know, it's this thing in, in, in Spain, in this case, in, in uh, Tenerife, you know, it's what what lengths are we going to go to for something that we believe is an important public good and you know you're essentially we're essentially using public money to buy off corrupt politicians is essentially what's going on here and so it's you know what lengths do we go to and and apparently you know the people who pushed the light rail were convinced that light rail is you know is great and wonderful and amazing and, and all that and it's at some level you have to start to ask yourself you know if we if this is going to cost us, this is going to cost us even more, and this is all this aggravation, you know, we'd be better off just taking that money and just spending it on, you know, on, on improvements to existing services. And, you know, you don't quite get as much uh, bang for your buck, or uh, I should say that, you don't quite get as, as a, you know, you don't get this uh, glamorous new project that uh, maybe, you know, uh, really, really improve things. But, you know, there is there's the question to be asked. And, and it's also, it has to do with, what you know what are we trying to achieve you know there's this idea that we have to build light rail because light rail is is you know the best light rail is awesome and you know we need to light rail is, is going to solve all our problems and 
Um, on the one hand, this you know the admission that that light rail is not going to solve all our problems. Um, but on the other hand, it's like, well, if sometimes maybe you're not, you know, we talked about there there were um, cases of of light rail failures, and you know these are places where light rail was was implemented, and it just it was an idea that it was a solution either in search of a problem or, you know, where the, the known problem didn't exist in the particular place and where the, you know, the ridership was overestimated or whatever. And, you know, it becomes why not just instead of putting all these resources into, into building this whole new infrastructure, you know, why not just put a bus lane or why not uh, invest in machines to facilitate offboard fare payment for buses or, you know, do something like that that's going to, to have a big impact, but it's not going to meet so much resistance. Only, in many of these cases, these people were willing to go with rail. They were, you know, not really happy about having to, you know, give up, as they call it, uh, their streets for light rail, but they would absolutely not have anything to do with the bus lane. And it was just bizarre, the way the way that this rail-bus dichotomy has inserted itself into the public discourse is just it's so so strange um people it's just like i don't want a bus anywhere near here you know and it's like it's a vehicle that you know it moves a lot of people it's important to people and you know it's just as shiny as a streetcar can be you know like what what is the problem it's so weird anyway that's all i have for today um not gonna try not to go too long here um, I've been putting these recordings together uh, for, you know, recaps of some of the sessions from the TRB conference and, and other things going on in DC, perhaps. Um, I haven't done them all, but I've done some. And I'm going to be playing those over the course of the next several episodes. So uh, look forward to that. There will certainly be more from uh, Washington, D.C., uh, especially my thoughts on how mobility in Washington, D.C. has greatly improved over the past five years or so uh, with the circulator buses uh, Metro's made some changes, although they're not super significant. But the, you know, the bike network is growing. And there's a bike share program that's highly successful. And I went over there. I met some people with the bike share program, so that was cool. So I'll be talking a little bit about all that in in uh, upcoming episodes. And right now, when I'm putting this all together, I'm in uh, New York. Uh, it's been been here for a few days now, and we just had a really really big snowstorm. And it's, it's kind of interesting how everybody's freaking out about it, and it's. Nobody is out traveling, and it's also like 15 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, which is what, negative 10 Celsius, maybe? Something like that. Um, so, you know, it's pretty interesting to see how people are kind of have kind of lost their minds. Uh, Monday, the day before the storm, the, getting groceries was a nightmare because everybody is acting like there are going to be no groceries on Tuesday or Wednesday or you're never going to get groceries ever again. I don't know. It's crazy. So yeah, there there was that. That was fun. Um, but I always enjoy riding buses during snowstorms because there is, the ridership is usually pretty low and there's not a lot of traffic on the streets because everybody's afraid of driving in the snow, which is good. Um, anything that gets fewer cars in the street. Awesome. So, you know, I always have fun riding buses in the snow because, and the buses are they usually run great because there's there's not much traffic, there's not a ton of ridership, and so the buses move and they, despite the weather, they're usually on time because uh, they don't have the usual sources of delay. So, 
I spent most of the blizzard day riding the subway and buses, and uh, I hadn't been in New York in over six months, so I was very happy to be riding the subways again, and uh, that's, so that's very exciting. And uh, now today's Wednesday, this is, uh, the city has recovered a little bit, but it still has not, uh, you know, there's, there's still not a lot of people out. Uh, the buses are running great, and uh, there are some buses that have had uh, uh, chains on the, the rear tires, which... It's something I've never seen before, and that, that is that is kind of strange to me. Um, and it provides a really really rough ride. If you've ever been, if you've never been on a bus with a with chains on the rear tires, it's so bumpy and a lot of vibration. And I'm not a fan. I need to get those things off of there, and then I'll get back on the bus. So anyway, I've gone way long with stuff that you probably don't care about. So I'm going to end here. You should go and find out more about. Me and my work and this podcast and my blog and transit tips and all that at criticaltransit.com. You can find all the links to this episode at criticaltransit.com slash 45. And you can find me on Facebook and on Twitter and you can get in touch. Send an email to feedback at criticaltransit.com with your ideas, comments, your suggestions for show topics and guests. You have a question about something you heard in the episode today. Maybe you have uh, thoughts about walking and system design signals light rail buses anything uh buying off corrupt politicians with public funds you want to talk about that that's cool um so yeah right in feedback at criticaltransit.com or you can reach out via the website or facebook or twitter and uh, we'll talk to you in the next episode